Well, good morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. We are actually in Genesis 31 this morning. I am going to walk through this entire chapter of Genesis 31, but this morning I'm only going to read the first three verses because I'm going to end up reading all 55 verses anyway in the course of the sermon, so I might as well just read the first three to get us started. So look with me at Genesis 31. I'm going to start in verse 1. Genesis 31, starting in verse 1. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your father's, and to your kindred, and I will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let us go to him and ask that he would bless it to our hearing. Father, we know that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And so we pray that we would hear it as your word, that we would listen to your voice, that we would be a people who know that you are the creator that you reign even now, that heaven is your throne and the earth is your footstool, that you are our redeemer, and may we be a people who are humble and contrite and who tremble at your word. Help us to understand what's happening in the life of Jacob as he grows in his fear of the Lord, as he grows in his trust, in his faith, and looks ever more to you, even as he faces much difficulty. Help us to learn how to walk in the same way, to learn from his example, and to look to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So what are you afraid of? I, I'm really asking the question, what do you fear? We all, we all fear something, in fact, I would argue we all fear a lot of things. You're a creature, and you're a creature who's confronted by your own mortality in any number of ways, and because that's true, you have fears. You have a variety of fears. Those fears often drive the manner in which you actually live your life. The fact is that fear abounds among men. We have fears of catastrophic economic downturns. I I heard about them all year last year. The cataclysmic economic event is coming this year, and the stock market went up and up and up and up. Okay, then at the end of this year, the beginning, you know, end of last year, the beginning of this year, it's coming this year, and and on we go. We fear unjust laws, whether from Sacramento or Washington D.C. We have fears. Who will be the next president? How will things change? We have fears of government conspiracies. I cannot tell you the number of government conspiracies I hear. Because we know men are evil, conspiracies seem fairly, you know, reasonable. We have fears of death, fears of disease, fears of being treated unjustly. We fear rejection. 
We fear loneliness. We fear family strife. We fear our adult children becoming wayward. We fear slander against our names. There's a reasonableness to our fears, isn't there? We are, after all, weak and mortal creatures. And so we have fears that are driven by our own weakness, our own lack of control, our own mortality, and our own sin. So how do we handle such fear? Or this multiplicity of fears, if you will. More importantly, how do we walk in the fear of the Lord? Rather than walking in the fear of these worldly realities and, and really worldly potentialities. Here's the, the simple answer to the question, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really drive this out through this entire text. We walk in obedience to the Lord, listening to his voice above all others, trusting his promise to be for us and with us. It's really that simple. It's a matter of walking in obedience to the Lord, fearing him above all else, trusting him to be for us and with us. We will see this played out in the life of Jacob today. In fact, we'll see, uh, we'll take the text in two parts. You're going to see this played out in the life of Jacob next week as we walk into Genesis 32 as well. But I want to take this in two parts. First, the obedience of the frightened household who fears the Lord. Did you, did you guys catch that? The obedience of the frightened household who fears the Lord. Genesis 31, 1 through 21. In other words, what I'm saying is this. Um, human households, and in this case, namely Jacob's, are frightened households. And yet there's a way in which they can walk in obedience in the fear of the Lord. The second part we're going to look at is really in the second part of Genesis 31, 31, 22 through 55, which is the Lord's vindication of the man who fears him and walks in his ways. So we'll see the Lord vindicate Jacob. So let's consider our first part in Genesis 31, the obedience, and I know this sounds strange to say it, the obedience of the frightened household who fears the Lord. Um, as we come to this text, I, wanna, I want you to be reminded of the story so far. Jacob fled from the promised land. We remember this out of fear of his brother Esau. He had tricked his brother Esau on more than one occasion, and his brother Esau had vowed to kill him. You all remember that. And so he decided to flee to the land where Rebekah's family is from, his mother's family is from, and he goes to that land to find a wife. Um, he goes to the household of Laban, Rebekah's brother. And after he worked, or after he arrived in the land, he actually went to work for seven years so that he could marry one of Laban's daughters, namely Rachel. Now Laban tricked Jacob, who had tricked Esau. You guys tracking so far? And so Laban tricked Jacob and gave him Leah instead. And Jacob was not happy. And so Laban said, fine, I'll give you Rachel too. You just need to work for me another seven years. And so he did. So Rachel and Leah and their two concubines bore several children for Jacob. After the birth of Joseph, so the second to last child, it's Joseph and then when Joseph's born, there's a promise of the son Benjamin coming. 
But after the birth of Joseph, Jacob decides it's time to go back to the promised land, to leave the land of Laban and head back home. And so he was ready to take his family and head back to the promised land, to the land of his fathers, to the land of Abraham and Isaac. And the Lord was with him, and the Lord had prospered him, so he was going to keep his vow to the Lord in return. The Lord had promised him, if you remember the scene with Jacob's ladder, where Jacob sees the vision of the angels ascending and descending between heaven and earth. In that scene, God had promised him, I'm going to prosper you, I'm going to give you children, I'm going to be with you, and then I'm going to take you back to the promised land. And so God had kept his promise, and Jacob was going to keep his vow. He had vowed to the Lord, I will follow you, I'll return. So he is returning. And Jacob had made an agreement with Laban just before this scene when he said, I want to return. Laban came and said, wait, um, what do I owe you? Well, let me take some of the sheep and goats. Well, I don't owe you anything. You've essentially done what you agreed to do, so why do I owe you anything? And so Jacob said, well, let me keep the the rare sheep and goats, the, the striped and and spotted, and mottled, and the, the ones that are rare. Let me keep them. And Laban says, fine. And then Laban takes all of the sheep and goats of that type and removes them three days from Jacob so that he has no way to breed that kind of sheep or goat, tricking him again. And yet the Lord prospers Jacob. And Jacob stays and works as a shepherd for Laban even longer and produces all of these sheep and goats. The Lord blessed him. So now Jacob had prospered. He had wives, children, great wealth, all under the oppression of Laban. So we see chapter 30 end that way. Look at verse 43 of chapter 30. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. Jacob was like Abraham and Isaac before him. The Lord was with him. He received the children promised to him. His wealth increased greatly, and the nations around him were blessed. That's the story of Abraham. That's the story of Isaac. And now that is also the story of Jacob. Now, in the face of that, look at what happens. Genesis 31 and verse 1. Now, Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. In other words, the Lord's blessing of Jacob after Laban's deceit caused strife among Laban's family. It had become um, a point at which Laban and the, if you will, his sons are looking at Jacob with great suspicion. There is no favor for him as the shepherd of their flocks anymore. Now they're turning on him, and it's time for him to go. So then the Lord intervenes, and that's where we really are, is is as the Lord intervenes in this scene to send Jacob home. So look at Genesis 31. We're just gonna read three through 16. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. That is the fundamental promise, by the way, command and promise God has given him. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, now here comes Jacob's speech to his wives. I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. 
yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see, all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. See, Jacob recognizes that the Lord is with him, and that the Lord has prospered him, and the Lord has protected him from the deceit of Laban. He understands that. Jacob's wives, Rachel and Leah, also recognize that God is with Jacob and their family. They also recognize. They all agree to depart. They all agree to go. All right, great. The Lord has been with us, and we know the angel of the Lord, or God himself, as he says, I'm the God of Bethel, the God that he met in that vision of Jacob's ladder. The Lord is with us. He has prospered us. He is telling us to go. Let's Go. So they depart. They leave. Now look at verse 17. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he gained, the livestock in his possession that he'd acquired in Paddan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Now, I, I want you to note two interesting facts here that just sort of pop up in the text. And we don't want to just run over them really quickly, but we want to pause for a minute. Here's the first interesting fact. Rachel stole the household gods. This is going to come up in a minute. Now notice this. Rachel had just acknowledged, just acknowledged that the Lord had prospered her family in spite of her father's taking advantage of them. Then she stole his gods. Why? Why? Well, there, there could be a few reasons. Scholars actually argue over it. Some scholars argue that due to some some archaeological work we've done and what we found among the ancient Near East, that um, the household gods were a symbol of family inheritance, of the family inheritance. And so what Rachel was doing is taking the inheritance rights she believes were stolen from her and Leah. That's what some scholars argue. Some scholars believe that because the household gods were covered with precious metals, she was taking the gods as repayment um, for losing her dowry, for losing her dowry. If you remember, she says, 
he basically sold us to you and then, then ate up the proceeds. Some scholars believe that Rachel knew her father used the gods for divination. If you remember in the prior chapter, her father had participated in divination and that he used the gods for divination and so she stole them to prevent him from using them to find their family and pursue them. So which one is it? I have no idea. The text doesn't tell us and there might be another possibility I'm unaware of. Here's what we know. We know that this is a sinful act, that it's an act of self-protection, an act driven by some sort of fear that she had. Whether it's a fear of the loss of inheritance or it's the fear of the loss of some kind of wealth or dowry or it's the fear um, of her father practicing divination and catching up with them, finding them and catching up with them. We don't know. But this act driven by Rachel's fear occurs right after, right after Rachel acknowledges that the Lord is with them and cares for them. Right after it. You just saw that in verse 16. Look, all the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. And then Rachel steals the household gods. I want you to think of this scene with regard to what's going on in Rachel's head. I want you to consider this. Here's kind of what she seems to be thinking. Well, God has surely protected us from our father's deceit and provided for us. So let's listen to the Lord. Okay, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna steal the household gods for my own protection. You know, you might think, that sounds so crazy. Like, do you even hear what you're doing? Rachel, do you see how you're saying in one breath, God is the God who's protected you and cared for you, and the next, I'm now gonna take matters into my own hands and steal the household gods to provide for myself or to protect myself. And as you see that, you think, how human. How, how much like me that is. In one breath, I say that I trust the Lord, and the next, I do the first thing I can do to take matters into my own hands. Now, we don't have household gods. That, at least I'm not aware of any of you have any. We'll talk. Invite me for a pastoral visit if you have any. But we don't tend to have household visits that we steal from one another. But there's other ways to do this. There are a number of other ways to do this. I trust the Lord. Now I'm going to do something just a little bit janky with my business practice, a little bit unethical because I don't, I don't trust the outcome. I trust the Lord. Now I'm gonna deceive my spouse in some way because I'm, I'm not sure how that will go. I trust the Lord, and, you, and on and on it goes. Second interesting fact is that Jacob tricked Laban and fled with the family when Laban was busy shearing the sheep. You guys read that. If you look at Genesis 31 and, and you go down, it says that in verse 21, he fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When did he do that? Well, when Laban was shearing the sheep, verse 20, and Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he, was intend, that he intended to flee. 
So Laban, the trickster, was tricked, right? But again, this is so interesting in the face of Jacob's obvious trust that the Lord was with him. In verse 5, he speaks of the Lord being with him. In verse 7, he speaks of the Lord being with him and caring for him. In verse 9, he speaks of the Lord being with him and caring for him. Now think of what's going through Jacob's head. God is with me. God has protected me and provided for me. Now quick, let's go before your dad finds out we're leaving because I'm afraid of him. Now you might be tempted to conclude, well then Jacob and Rachel do not really trust the Lord. They fear man and not God. Their profession of faith is just empty then, right? And if you concluded that, you'd be wrong. You'd be wrong. Yes, Jacob and his family flee Laban. They fear for their own freedom. They fear for their safety. They fear for their provision. But they fear God more than Laban. They trust that the Lord has delivered and prospered to them. So in spite of their fears, they listen to God's voice and they leave. In spite of their fears. You hear that? They listen to God and they leave. And remember, Jacob had fled from the promised land in fear of Esau, who had sworn to kill him, and his first encounter back in the promised land is going to be with who? Esau. So he's not going from a bad situation with Laban to a really nice life in the land with Esau. While you continue to see Jacob struggle with his difficult circumstances, what I'm driving at is you're also seeing Jacob mature in his faith. He now fears the Lord more than he fears man. Even his wife Rachel's maturing in her faith. Though she had tried to make a deal with regard to the mandrake leaves because she trusted in some local superstition about fertility and though she steals the gods because she trusts in some local superstition with regard to these idols, she's actually beginning to grow in her faith and trust the Lord at the same time, right? You guys know what that's like. If you don't think you participate in, in any superstition, then you're just not paying attention. Knock on wood, right? Oh, don't say that. It might happen. What? Are we pagans now? <laughs> he now fears the Lord more than he fears man. That's what I'm driving at. So he listens to the voice of the Lord and he departs from Laban. A move that's sure to cause him problems. And he heads to the land where Esau lives. Jacob's faith has grown. He fears the Lord and listens to his voice. But this is not, does not mean he has no fears left in his life. Jacob obeys the Lord. He fears God more than men. Saints, that's how we're to live. That's how we're to live. We are commanded to obey the voice of the Lord fearing him more than whatever frightens us in the world. We're commanded to hear and obey the voice of the Lord rather than the voice of the world around us or even, and perhaps especially, the voice in our own head. If there's a voice that you refuse to listen to, let it be your own. Get godly people around you who speak the truth and love to you and listen to them and not yourself because no one lies to you more effectively than you do because you don't even know you're lying to you.
We're to do this, listen to the voice of the Lord, and we're to teach our children to do this. Um, Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. Keep your hand there in Genesis 31 and look over at Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomos, the second law or the second telling of the law is what that is. In other words, God's people are about to enter the promised land, but that's the second generation. The first generation's fallen in the wilderness due to sin. And so the second generation's essentially being told, let me tell, what, tell you what your fathers did. Don't do that. Do this instead. And so we read this in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. This is Moses speaking to them that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your sons and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets before your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, Everywhere you go, in every part of life, you're meditating, if you will, on the law of the Lord day and night. And you're teaching it to your children, and you're teaching them to meditate on it day and night. We recognize who the Lord is, and we listen to him above all else. That's what God's people are commanded to do. Listen to how Isaiah puts this. Thus says the Lord... Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. So that should stop us in our tracks. The Lord who created the heavens and the earth, who says the heavens are his throne and the earth is his footstool, who says he created all things, they all belong to him. He says, this is the one to whom I look, and we ought, our ears ought to perk up right there and go, who's the one to whom he looks? I want that to be me. Here's the answer. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Those who fear the Lord walk in his ways and in accord with his word. But how do we do that? You know, I get that we're commanded to do that. But how do we do it? How do we walk in the fear of the Lord rather than walking in the fear of the worldly realities that confront us? Well, we have to start by believing God's word. Not our own thoughts. Not the siren call of the world. Not the deception of Satan. We believe what God says. We must believe first and foremost that he is with us and that he is for us. 
in the person of his son by the working of his Holy Spirit. You might say, but, but how do I know he is with me and for me? Well, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, if you are someone here who, whose faith has been placed upon the Lord Jesus, his person and his work, if you are indwelled by his spirit, then God is with you and God is for you. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And he dwells by the spirit in all those who trust in him. The Father also dwells by the Spirit in all those who trust in Christ. That's why Paul can say that you receive the Spirit of adoption as sons and you can trust your Father rather than falling back into fear. You can face the difficulties of life, the fears that you have, knowing you have a gloriously gracious Savior and a relentlessly good Father. You're heirs of God. And as Paul says, thus the sufferings of this present time are not worth being compared to the glory to be revealed to us. You might reply, yeah, but it's hard. I, I don't know how to face all these fears. Well, as Paul goes on to say, if you don't notice, I'm just in Romans 8 in my head. Paul goes on to say, well, the Holy Spirit helps you in your weakness. He's dwelling in you and interceding in prayer. He's working all things for your good. Further, Christ is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. So if the Holy Spirit's in you interceding for you, and Christ is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you, what do you really have to fear? See, he's working all things for your good. Listen, Christian, if God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him also graciously give us all things? It's an argument for the, from the greater to the lesser. If God gave you his only son, the greatest thing he could ever give you, why don't you trust him for everything else? Is it really that hard to trust him for everything else when he's given you the greatest thing he can give you? See, we hear these glorious things these glorious truths ring across the scriptures. We can face what frightens us because the Lord Jesus is with us and for us. L listen to just some sampling of, of how that comes out in, in the New Testament. How do we fear the Lord rather than our own death? Death is coming. Death is It's just a matter of time. You know, you guys have heard me say this before. When I was like 18 or 20, to me, death was chasing me already, but death lived over in China somewhere. Right, it wasn't anywhere near me. It was way over there. Now I'm 50, death is across the street sort of peeping in the window of my house. Right? He's closing in. He's getting ever closer all the time. He's coming for you. How do you fear the Lord rather than your own death? Listen, listen to what I think Paul says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. In other words, he took flesh and blood to himself. That through death, his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you hear what he's saying? Fear of death gripped you because it's coming for you, but Jesus took humanity to himself and he died in your place to free you from the fear of death. How do we fear the Lord rather than financial ruin or loss? 
Financial ruin or loss might come for any one of us, any day. How do we fear the Lord rather than that? Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? How do we fear the Lord rather than our future with a spouse who makes ungodly or unwise decisions? Some of you have spouses who make ungodly and unwise decisions. Thankfully, mine doesn't make any of those ever. No. We all have spouses who make them occasionally, and we, some of us have spouses who make them frequently. And so we have fear. How do you fear the Lord rather than that? For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now listen, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that's frightening. Sarah's husband, Abraham, basically gave her, not basically, did give her to two other men, saying, you know what, I need to cover myself here and protect myself, so you go over there and be theirs. Now, now you could imagine how difficult and frightening that was for Sarah. And what he's saying is, she feared the Lord more than the frightening things her husband was subjecting her to. And you can do the same thing. How do we fear the Lord rather than the wicked slander and persecution of the world around us? Listen to Peter. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. See, even when you suffer for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of upholding the name of Christ, you don't need to fear man because Christ is your Lord. Trust him and know he's for you. How do we fear the Lord rather than the unjust treatment from the authorities placed over us? We're, we all have authorities placed over us. Whether that's an employer or that's um, the government in some way, how do we fear the Lord rather than that? Listen to Peter again. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Notice, you don't have any, there's not much credit for you getting in trouble for your own sin. But listen, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So when you suffer injustice at the hands of an authority, he says, follow the example of Christ. Entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. Now, admittedly, admittedly, this growing of your ability to endure fear is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. He's been sent to shed abroad the love of God in your hearts. He does that. Now, that's not your love for God, by the way, just so we know. When Paul says in Romans 5.5 5, that 
the Holy Spirit has shed abroad the love of God in your hearts, or when he says in 2 Corinthians 5 that the love of Christ compels me, he's not saying my love for Christ or my love for God. He's saying God's love for me. Christ's love for me. The Spirit comes to you, if you will, and says to you something that's nearly impossible for the person facing the reality about themselves to believe. Here's what he says. God loves you, and he's given his only son for you. Not because of anything you've done, but because of who he is. And when you grasp that by the Spirit, that causes you to walk in the fear of the Lord rather than the fear of man. You grow in that. And Jacob's faith has strengthened so that he understands this in a manner he did not understand it in prior years. His faith is not perfect. We can see it in the passage, it's not. But it's growing. It's strengthening, and that leads us to the second part of Genesis 31. Look there, the Lord's vindication of the man who fears him and walks in his ways. So look at Genesis 31. The Lord's vindication of the man who fears him and walks in his ways. Look at verse 22. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. He's not going to do good things here, you understand? He's basically taking a small army with him. Verse 24, But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. See, Laban pursues Jacob with a small army. He's angry at Jacob's deceit and intends to bring retribution. But the Lord intervenes and warns Laban in a dream not to harm Jacob. The Lord is making it clear to Laban, I am protecting Jacob. You better not cross this line. So verse 25, and Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? That you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword. That's not true, by the way. But anyway, why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs with tambourine and lyre? You guys knew that Laban was going to do that, right? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. Now here, here comes the, the but. But the God of your fathers, father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid. For I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants. But he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in, a cam in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Now this is actually a fairly entertaining scene. Jacob admits that he fled, fled because he was afraid of Laban. Laban admits that he would bring retribution if it wasn't for the fact that he was afraid of Jacob's God. 
And then what's interesting is that Jacob tells him, I don't know anything about your household gods that were stolen, but I want you to stop and just consider for a moment. If I can steal a man's gods, you understand what the text is getting at. So he feels around in these dark tents, and the language is the feeling around that's the same what you see when Isaac is feeling Jacob to see if he's Esau or not. In other words, it's like, it's like a dark blindness. He can't, he can't see it. He can't find his gods. They're certainly not helping him, so he doesn't find them. And Rachel stole them, and now she sits on them menstruating. I want you to think of the scene. The pagan gods of Laban have been stolen. They're unable to help Laban find them, and now they're suffering the insult of being sat upon by a woman and menstruated on. These are weak and worthless gods indeed. And Jacob is able to see the reality of all this. Yahweh is God, not these false idols. They are not gods at all. Look at Genesis 31, verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I've been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. And I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts, I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hands you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house, I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you changed my wages 10 times. Now, here's what he's getting at. Listen, I was about as good a shepherd or employee as you're ever gonna find. I worked day and night, and when things were stolen from the family business, I paid for it. And you kept changing my wages, never giving me what you promised. Do you imagine having that kind of employer? You work day and night, Whenever something's stolen from the business, you pay for it, and he changes your wages all the time. Jacob says, you've been doing that to me for 20 years. Why are you finding any fault with me? What have I ever done to you? And he's absolutely in the right. Goes on, verse 42. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Jacob lays out his record of faithful service, his care for Laban's family, the way in which he prospered these many years. And Jacob rebukes him for failing to see things as they are. But while doing this, he points out that God is protecting him. And he does something that you would not know if you had not read your whole Bible thoroughly. He gives God a name that God has not yet received and that God only receives in this chapter and never again. He calls God the fear of Isaac. You see it there. He says, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side. He calls God the God of Abraham 
the God we know who's the creator and sustainer of all things, El Shaddai, God Almighty, the God of the covenant, but he also calls him the fear of Isaac. He does that twice in Genesis 31, and that's the only place in the whole Bible where God is addressed with this title. And the name of God here is Telling. It's not quite the same thing as saying, fear the Lord, though you should fear the Lord. He's not saying, fear the Lord. He's not saying, I fear the Lord. What he's saying is, the Lord is my fear. He's the fear of my father, Isaac. In other words, Yahweh is the awesome and powerful God who is not to be trifled with. My father, Isaac, feared him, and now I fear him too, and so should you. He is Isaac and Jacob's fear. We hear Isaiah not use this title, but address the Lord in a parallel manner, similar manner. The Lord spoke to Isaiah, warning him not to be consumed with the fears of the people. Remember, the Lord's judgment was coming through the foreign nations. And Isaiah was to fear God above all. Listen listen to what the Lord says to Isaiah in Isaiah 8. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, And warn me not to walk in the way of this people. This people being Israel and Judah at the time. Saying, listen to what he says. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Um, Just some of you ought to take that one home. (laughs) Do not call conspiracy all this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him Shall you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Now listen, and he will become a sanctuary. That is the place where God dwells. He will dwell with you. He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. See, do not behave, do not conduct yourself as these unbelievers do. Do not think like they think, always fearful of some kind of conspiracy. Now let's, what if there is a government conspiracy that could bring you harm? Then you have the Lord. You have the Lord, so so don't let that be your fear. Let the Lord be your fear. God is with you. His sanctuary is in your midst. That means he's with you. He will care for his people and destroy his enemies. Israel was taught not to fear as the world, but to fear the Lord. The Exodus, remember, taught them that God is holy and just and awesome. It taught them to fear God rather than Pharaoh. It also taught them that the Lord is with them. His hand is against his enemies. Thus, he should be their fear. They should walk in the fear of the Lord, trusting he is awful and unsafe, yet good and kind to them. We're taught the same in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the greater exodus. God saved Israel from Pharaoh. God saved us from the Pharaoh of Satan's sin and death. And so we walk in the fear of the Lord. We trust him and we listen to him and we obey him. We know he is with us and for us. And friends, this is precisely what is meant when Solomon says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do you want to walk in wisdom? then trust the Lord Jesus. Listen to his word and not your own. And as one who fears the Lord and not man, Jacob was committed to obeying the voice of the Lord even when he was afraid. 
He knew that Yahweh was with him, so he wanted to do what the Christian man does. And so he began to turn away from evil and do good, to seek peace and pursue it. And that's what we read happens in the next part of the text. Look at Genesis 31, 43. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they've born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Jacob did not say, you know what? You have completely taken advantage of me for the last 20 years. You've lied at every turn. Why would I ever make a covenant with you? What he said is, the Lord is with me. The Lord has cared for me. And so I'm going to seek peace and pursue it. If you want to make a covenant, let's make one. So he does. Takes a stone and sets it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagger Sahadutha. But Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mitzpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me. Then, or excuse me, when we were out of one another's sights, if you oppress my daughter, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Just, just as a quick thing, you understand this is a covenant of distrust. Okay, we're going to make this pillar, we're going to covenant together, we're going to make peace, but here's the peace. You stay over there, I'll stay over here, God will watch us to make sure we don't take advantage of one another. That, that's the kind of covenant this is. Jacob is not saying, even though you have taken advantage of me year after year for 20 years, let's make a covenant of peace where we act like none of that happened. He's saying, I don't trust you. You don't trust me. Here's the covenant of peace. We will not bring harm to one another. We'll just stay out of each other's way. This, by the way, is a verse that has been much abused. Sometimes I tell you that context is king, queen, Prime Minister, like context is the whole thing when you read the Bible, right? Context, context, context. Look at, look at this verse um, at verse 49. And mitzvah, for he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we're out of one another's sight. You understand that's a, that's a watch between you and me because I don't trust you, right? When I was in seminary at Talbot, um, Talbot Seminary is on the campus of Biola University, and I would go to the bookstore uh, because our books were there, but there, were other, there was other stuff there. You know how they have merchandise of sort, various kinds. And so I would go in there, and, and I remember, this is like 1999, 2000, they had um, these necklaces for boyfriends and girlfriends to buy, and they each got half. And it said, the Lord watch between you and me when we're out of one another's sight. And I thought, oh man, you need to read the whole chapter. Like, that is not what that's supposed to mean, or what are you saying about your boyfriend or girlfriend? Anyway, Jacob made a covenant with peace of, with, of peace with Laban. He feared the Lord and not Laban, that's the point, nor his false gods, and he sought peace and pursued it. He sought peace and pursued it. In August, I was in Vanuatu. The, I've told you guys this before, the island chain... It uh, used to be called the New Hebrides, where the missionary John G. Payton went to bring the gospel. In his autobiography, he told the story of a frightening night in which the natives were attempting to burn down the church next to his home. 
the fire was lit and he was attempting to extinguish it, then, and they were coming for him with weapons. They were coming for him with weapons. And when a tempest of rain and wind came from the sea um, at that point and extinguished the fire. So, so I want you to imagine the scene. Here you are on this island. The natives are coming for you. They've set things on fire trying to burn down your church and your home. And then a storm comes up from the sea with wind and rain and extinguishes the fire. Now, if that wind had blown the wrong way, the church, his home, and everything else would have been consumed. And listen to how Peyton describes the scene. They yelled in rage and urged each other to strike the first blow, but the invisible one restrained them. I stood invulnerable. I stood invulnerable beneath his invisible shield. At this dread moment, a rushing and roaring sound came from the south like the noise of muttering, muttering thunder. They knew from previous hard experience that it was one of their awful tornadoes of wind and rain. The mighty roaring of the wind and the cloud pouring in torrents awed them into silence. Some began to withdraw from the scene. All lowered their weapons of war and several terror-struck exclaimed, that is Jehovah's reign. Truly, they're Jehovah's fighting for them and helping them. Let us away. A panic seized upon them. They threw away their remaining torches. In a few moments, they had all disappeared in the bush, and I was left alone, praising God for his marvelous works. Oh, taste and see that God is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Now, friends, you might say, well, that's a glorious coincidence. But saints, there are no such thing as coincidences. God is with his people. God is for his people. Even the seeming chance events around you are shaped for your good and God's glory. So while you may be frightened, do not fear the frightening thing that you fear more than you fear God. You understand that? You are invincible under his invisible shield. Due to the law-keeping life, sin-atoning death, and grave-conquering resurrection of Jesus, the law can no longer condemn you. Sin and Satan can no longer enslave you. The world cannot ultimately harm you. Even death has no power, no sting for you. If he has given his own son for you, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Jacob understood that. And so Jacob trusted the Lord and made a covenant with Laban of peace. Then, Jacob, then Laban said to Jacob, verse 51, See this heap in the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness. That I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap to, and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. Here's Laban committed to multiple gods. So Jacob did not swear to those gods. Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his granddaughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. So Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And we pick up there next week. But I 
want to remind you, saints, we need to trust the Lord and walk in the fear of the Lord. You are invincible under his invisible shield in life and in death. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful that you are God who is with us and for us, that we see that preeminently in your giving of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. May we trust in him, look to him, and give thanks for him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.